Genesis 15, verses 1 through 21. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may we take to heart the meaning in your passing through the cut animals as you have assigned it. We know that you have taken on the ultimate responsibility for our sin and that you have taken care of that responsibility 
by sending your one and only Son to be our sin-bearer and your wrath-bearer on our behalf. By your Spirit and Word through this passage, please mark that meaning deep into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are to rest assured in the complete work of God in the offering of this sacrifice. That God reassures us in this passage that he'll keep every bit of his promises to us. Every bit. So when you wonder if God keeps his promises, how does he deal with you? How do you expect him to deal with you? Well, he reassures you by his covenant, which he shows you by first drawing you into dialogue, which we talked about last week. We'll review a bit here, drawing you into rest and then finally drawing you into love. I'm going to repeat a little bit of my intro last week. I know I'm taking my life in my own hands when I proclaim that I'm an Alabama football fan. Especially in these parts. But as I've watched Coach Nick Saban over the years, his big word is, well, he has two big themes. First, from every recruit that he gets that comes to the football team, he wants buy-in. They have to buy in to the program. And what's the program? It's one word, process. The process, if you want to talk about it. The idea that you don't look at the scoreboard, you don't look to be national champions before you are national champions. You just do your job in your position and the results will happen. That's the process. And he's constantly teaching this. And it gives you a sense of, if you're a player or a parent looking at a program, it gives you a sense of future confidence, that there's a commitment to make sure that this will be done. So how does God get buy-in to the process that he has for us? Well, it's through compassionate persuasion, as we see in this passage, that we learn by God's compassionate persuasion that he is good for everything he says. And he does this first by drawing us into dialogue like he did with Abram here. And what we see in God drawing Abram into dialogue here is that God is more concerned about your faith than you'll ever be. Because God never lies to you. But there are times you might wonder. This is how concerned God is about your faith. He knows you have questions. He's not afraid of your questions. He actually brings about events to bring them out so that his word can speak to you. He wants to hear you. See, Abram isn't all that he should be. But when God comes to Abram in verse one, he's confident in his word. God himself is confident. There's no shakiness. He just proclaims to Abram exactly what he is. I am, he says, uh, your, your, I am your shield and your reward will be very great. Which then a little question mark light bulb comes up in Abram's mind. And he comes with this gut-wrenching, heartfelt, questioning wonder. It's not doubt. It's, I'm wondering what's going on, Lord. Help me. You promised this child, but I don't have one. 
So God goes, okay, this is the great opportunity I've been looking for. I'm going to teach you something. And how, emphasis, how God puts emphasis on this. Not this man, Eliezer, will be your heir, but your very own son. And Abram, in turn, as it says in verse 6, he believes and God credits it, credits it to him as righteousness. So God succeeds in transferring his own confidence in his own word to Abram having confidence in his own word. As we see in Romans 4 there in your sheets. For what does the scripture say? Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Not to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. In other words, your faith doesn't really contribute anything. Your faith is just counted. God just counts it. He declares you righteous when you trust in Jesus, whom these cut animals represent. So God on that basis never looks down on you. So you don't have to wonder. He speaks to you to ground you in his faithfulness to you. He's got your buy-in now as he got Abram's buy-in that you're trusting in that he's good for this word. But Abram, he, he brings this promise to Abram again, reminding him that he did so many times before. I'm gonna give you this land to you and to your offspring. And again, Abram, oh, question mark light bulb comes up. How am I going to know? You see, he's still bringing us into dialogue every step of the way for correction and for further grounding in his word. I mean, Abram had a lot of reasons to think, oh, these people are kind of evil around us here in this land. And I just went to war with them. I'm glad I won. I'm glad you gave me the wisdom. But this ain't that easy, Lord. You know, just give me the child. I believe you for the child. The land, uh, I don't know about this. But he grounds you in his faithfulness to prepare you to journey on. We see that in verses 9 through 11. To carry that confidence in his word into the process that he brings you to. First here by setting up a covenant. Now God tells him, Abram brings the question up. God doesn't answer his question. He just says, go get these animals and bring them here. And then Abram knows what to do. He cuts them in half because this is, this is an ancient practice. Covenant making. In fact, the word in the Bible for covenant that's translated covenant really has the connotation of to cut a covenant. It's about cutting and blood. And yes, there is gore in this. Because it's about death. The day you eat of that tree, Adam, you will surely die. So someone has to die because God is not turning back on his justice. He will uphold his justice. And if he doesn't, listen, there's no cry for justice. If God doesn't uphold his justice, all the justice that people are crying out for now has no sense at all because it's just other people like us crying out for it. And everyone's just as messed up in this regard as everyone else. 
We need God to uphold his justice. If you don't believe in the wrath of God against sin, then you don't understand Jesus at all. At all. So God sets up this this covenant of cutting the pieces that he is going to bind himself to his people, even though they're ungodly, as Paul says, that God would give up his son for the ungodly. You know, that's how you qualify to come to Christ. You actually admit, yeah, I'm not what I should be. In fact, I'm far worse. I'm probably worse than I can even imagine. And God grounds all this in the land on which Abram is called to live this out, to give us the confidence to journey on because Abram comes in, he keeps the birds of prey away, he cuts the animals after, I mean, and then keeps the birds of prey away. And that's the heart of sanctification. That God, after he justifies us, like Abram believed and it was counted, declared by God as righteousness, now he's to journey on into the process, which is sanctification, which means to become more and more like God, to become more holy, because we're never fully holy in this life, in this fallen world. But we are called to engage God in this process as Paul says in Philippians there on your scripture sheets. Um, Skip down to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you. It's a God and me thing, sanctification. Work it out. It's hard, but God says, I got this. Because I'm doing this for my work, in my work, for my good pleasure. It's guaranteed. So God reassures us that he'll keep every bit of his promises to us. So when you wonder if God keeps his promises, he deals with you by reassuring you by his covenant, which he shows you by drawing you into dialogue and then into rest. Verses 12 through 16. You see, God's more in control of your circumstances than you might wonder. See, God takes your burdens so you don't need to feel alone. He gives sleep. Abram goes to sleep at the proper time. The sun was going down and deep sleep fell on Abram. It's time to sleep. That's when God tells, brings about the circumstances. Why? Because he's the one at work. Psalm 121.4. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And then this dreadful darkness that comes into Abraham, it's more of an experience of that in his sleepy, dreamy state. This reinforces God's good work as we see in the second half of verse 12. Because it says, behold, that is a considering both on Abram's part and on our part of the dreadful great darkness that fell upon him. It represents everything evil, everything to be feared in this fallen world. It's a subjective darkness with dread, and it's great and big. You see, God, in his compassionate uh, nature, he's not hiding the nature of the fallen world from Abram. Abram being afraid of all these evil people, he's saying, you're right. You're right. But God teaches him this. That ought to give Abram confidence. It's just like when my kids at home, a lot of times I'll correct them about things and I'll tell them, please don't feel like I'm going after you. 
I would rather you hear it from here in this home from people you love than out there from people who don't love you where the consequences could be much greater. And so this is a prophecy that the meaning for Abram is that God is showing him, I've got this future thing for you. You're going to see this, Abram. Now, how is he going to see? He's going to die before he ever, his people ever take possession of this land. Well, look at Hebrews uh, 11 there. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. For he was looking to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's what he's looking to. So darkness and great dread are a normal part of this fallen world. Verse 13, know for certain, for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, just like you, Abram. And by the way, the first readers are the ones that God was talking about here, the first readers of of Genesis. Abram knew this. He left and went into the promised land as a family slash nation among the Canaanites. And Abram lived this out as he himself was almost enslaved in Egypt. The second half of verse 13, and, and they will be servants there in that land. And God prepares us for the peace we can have in him in the midst of all of this because there's a certainty of light in this passage from the darkness. The first readers had just come out of their 400-year affliction that God talks about here to Abram. And they will be afflicted for 400 years in verse 13. So this certainty that God produces here for Abram gives you the reassurance in the dark, verse 14. The reassurance that God will end the dark and prove his justice, but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, verse 14 says. So there's a certainty of judgment on the seed of the serpent. Then the Lord said to Moses from Exodus 10, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. And in verse 23, They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. See, God makes a distinction. The only identity distinction that's legitimate in this world today, because everything else is from lying men, all the identity descriptions, lying men. God doesn't see any other distinctions in in humanity than the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That's it. Everything else is just empty. Nothing, in fact, can be used for evil and is being used for evil. But there's a certainty of seeing the Lord's justice because God promised us way back in Genesis 3 when mankind fell in Adam, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's talking to the serpent at this point who is Satan. And God is saying, I'm going to put mutual hostility between these two lines of people. Now, every one of us, including Abram here, was born in a condition that's such that we are seed of the serpent when we're born. As Bob Dylan said in his album Saved, song Saved, I was blinded by the devil, born already ruined, 
stone cold dead as I stepped out of the womb. That is being seed of the serpent because we're stone cold dead to God and we're following our father, Satan. That's our true father in our natural birth in terms of how we relate. Now, he's not our true father in the overall scheme of things, but we don't relate to God as father and therefore God doesn't relate to us as sons. We're not children of God naturally. Born naturally, we're not children of God. We have to be born again to become the seed of the woman because the only true seed of the woman was the one that the Holy Spirit, as we confessed in our Apostles' Creed, the Holy Ghost uh, con- conceived the, the true seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, bring the defeat of evil in Jesus Christ. Yes, the seed of the serpent, the, the serpent himself, would strike this particular seed's heel, that was the cross, thought he won, finally killed that seed of the, of the woman, and then he resurrected. So there's a reassurance that God will stay true to his word and he will give gifts to prove his grace. On top of that, look at the end of verse 14. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions from that land. There's a certainty here that God never forgets you. His first readers um, here, the first readers that uh, Moses wrote to, Uh, We see here Moses called to them in the Exodus before they even knew what God was doing, just like Abram here. Look at Exodus 3, 21 through 22. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." So there's a certainty that God grants you grace, kind favor. When he says at the end of verse 14, they will come out with great possessions. And it did happen in Exodus 12 as as God was leading them out. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of of the Egyptians, just like he said, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. It's a sign of salvation from God's wrath and his judgment. And it's an inheritance that they can now see as a token symbol in order to take it to the next level of fulfillment. And that greater fulfillment of what happened here in Egypt is found in Christ. Romans 4.13, for the promise to Abram and his offspring was that he would be what? Heir of the world. And that did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. What that means is you can't be good on your own. You may think you're good. You may assess yourself as good. You may assess other people as good. But and in some level, we can be relatively good or evil in terms of what we do in society. But in our hearts, as the old saying goes, there but for the grace of God go I. And God, when he sees the world, all he sees is evil across the board in all of our hearts. But the righteousness of faith is that righteousness that Christ lived for us, that God gives to us when we come to Christ by faith. We have all the righteousness we're ever going to need right there in terms of God's judgment. So God takes care of you so you don't have to feel anxious about that coming judgment. He gives real hope for real peace, verse 15. 
And that hope consists of he's constantly thinking good of you. No matter where you are, for he says to Abram, as for yourself, as for yourself, I'm thinking of you. Even at death's door, as Psalm 23, 4, I'm not going to read it, but we know that walking through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with us to comfort us. And here's what hope consists of there. He is continually leading you to your final rest. You shall, end of verse 15, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. As Psalm 116 says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And so he gives specific details to secure secure steadiness for Abram. He plans everything, even when you can't see. Look at verse 16. And they shall come back here, here to this place in the fourth generation. That's definite. It's how we see his plans through his revelation of them. And he specifies the plans so the timing is just right for the iniquity, end of verse 16, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That means that God is watching. He's watching over everything, every detail for your salvation. So God's more in control of your circumstances than you might wonder. And he reassures you that he'll keep every bit of his promises. If you wonder and you wonder how he's going to deal with you when you wonder, he reassures you by his covenant, which he shows you by drawing you into dialogue. He wants to know and hear and speak directly to the questions of anxiety in your heart. He draws you into rest thereby and finally into love, verses 17 through 21. You see, God's more committed to your salvation than you'd ever dream. He makes an impression here on Abram because this is real darkness now. The darkness that Abram experienced at first was internal in a sense, the dread, but now darkness has objectively outside world fallen on the land. And you know when Jesus died on the cross, there was darkness as he gave up his spirit to God. There's darkness over the land for three hours. Darkness surrounds you right before his dawning. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark. And he's prepping you for the light that suddenly appears, reassuring you that he walks in your place. Look at the end of verse 17. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces. Now here's the heart of the covenant. What God is saying here, as he represents himself in this this smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. By the way, the first readers are seeing this. You know how God led them through the desert. Something that looked like smoke was a cloud during the day and then a big tower of flames at night. This is just a small, you know how God grows his gospel in these things. This is his good news. This is really all about Jesus ultimately. But what God is saying is, and what that ceremony says, is when you cut the animals in half and the blood runs into the center, the two parties of the covenant that they're making a bond together, that they say this, we're committing to this, to the death, like when they walk through together, they're saying, what happened to these animals happened to me if I don't keep my side of this agreement, this covenant, this bond that I'm making with you. Notice how we say in marriage, till death do us part. 
It's to the death. And so, Abram would have expected that, but he didn't expect this. God is assuring, as he alone walks through this, these cut animals, if I fail to keep the government, if I, God, fail to keep this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And Abram, guess what? If you fail on your side to keep this covenant, may what happens to these animals happen, and he would expect to you, but instead God says, to me. That's what this means. It's a formal assurance of his love for you that he would give up his very best. His own life, in a sense, in place of yours. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, he gave his best, that whosoever believes in him should not perish because he perished, but have eternal life. You see, it was a love for you that already existed prior to your even showing up. Even though you're born seed of the woman, he had a love for you and he proved it by walking through the cut animals and showing it in the death and the blood of his son and then rising from the dead to conquer all that, to give you the reassurance that he's never going to turn his back on you. He's never going to walk away from you. It's an eternal love that leads to eternal life and you will see God's fulfillment of it. So God makes a covenant. This is a formal ceremony that speaks to the bond of the love that is already there. And that gives you confidence for the future because from this day forward, he will be leading you as he says to Abram, As it says in verse 18, on that day, God did this. And he's saying, your success will equal my death. The Lord made a covenant with Abram. And then God commits to doing what you can't. The promises of that covenant land to make your footsteps sure. He swears by himself his repeated promise in verse 18, saying To your offspring, I will give this land. This is not just pie in the sky by and by. It is for right now with your feet firmly planted on the ground, walking and following him. I got this for you. The promise is your success. Look, more land. The promise is expanded. It's given specifics from the uh, river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates to make your footsteps sure, to make your faith complete, verses 19 through 21. See, this land, you know, the the land of, as God says, is it impossible to possess? In Abram's mind, he's wondering, can I really keep this up, battling all these people? I gotta have a child, then I just have one generation there, grandchild, how long is this gonna take? Are we really gonna possess the land, Lord? Really? God says, yes, and he's going to get real specific here in this list of people. These impossible enemies will be defeated. God, in Christ Jesus, he conquers all his and our enemies. So in conclusion, God's more committed to your salvation than you'd ever dream. 
And what's your glory? Is it national championships? What if you have a covenant that, that, that this God would invest in others' interests out of love to give forth fruit in the process that leads somewhere? You know where it leads? It leads to glory. Look at Revelation 19 there, six through eight. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for, and this is it. How do we get that glory? By being attached to the lamb. For the marriage of the lamb has come. For his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And get this, even our imperfect obediences, our stumbling, bumbling obediences in this life, look at what it says. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That God is taking every step of obedience that we do now, not because we're trying to earn salvation or get God's attention, but because he has given us the righteousness of Christ and we respond out of gratitude. And we get, and look, he's actually noting it for us. He's underscoring it. You get glory. That's where this process ends. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what wondrous love is this, that you would give up your very best, who in turn would give himself up to the death that we deserve at the hands of angry, sinful men like us in order to take for us the just punishment for our sins in our place. Thank you that you showed us in this passage as you showed Abraham, our forefather in the faith, that we would find salvation, not through the blood of sacrificial animals, but through the death of the God-man, your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus. Please guide us as we move from hearing your word in the preaching of this gospel to the presentation to our other senses that you have ordained for us to do, which is the good news that we are yours through the person and work of our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.